All right, so let's let's get into the word this morning. I'm going to go to Matthew chapter 1. All right? Matthew chapter 1. And so today I want to emphasize and bring out uh, something that grabs me as strategic. The 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 um the visit, the visit of the Magi's, um, the wise men, their purpose, their reason, what were they trying to tell us, what were they pronouncing, what, what significance is it to the whole Christmas story and Jesus and the birth of Christ and all that. And so I want to draw out some, some, some highlights in that. And so I begin in Matthew chapter 1. And I will start somewhere about verse uh, 18, maybe. You know, last time I spoke, I, I talked to you about fake news. I was trying to make the message relative to our time and the, the situation that we're in right now. And so I'm going to try to see if I can recreate some of that modern conceptualizing of our old story and how it relates to now. Uh, verse 18, it says... This is how Jesus, the Messiah, was born. His mother, Mary, was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. I want to pause there for a little bit, because this, this scripture goes on just a little bit further into about verse 24, somewhere around there. It can be said in a modern context, if one is to stretch your mind just a little bit to make things fit into a today's world, that, um, and, and, and hear me through, the birth of Jesus was kind of scandalous. Right? Here is a pregnant teenage woman, unmarried. Does that ring a bell today? That will be considered within Christian community a scandalous event. Except but for history is being formed in this particular story. So Joseph is confronted with what does society say or do? How do I gain acceptance? How do I fit into this, this you know, righteous role that I walk in? I have this young girl. She's pregnant. I have never had any occasion with her. And, and what, what, how can I live with this? I can't do this. So he sought to privately divorce her and end the whole situation to stop the scandal. The birth of Jesus was scandalous. Except if you go down to around verse 23, somewhere down there it says, but this was an incident that came about because of the Holy Spirit. So even in the Christmas story, we are confronted, you know, square up with, the power of the Holy Ghost. This was not a scandal when the truth is uncovered. This was a scandal only as far as public opinion goes. 
But the purposes of God was being formed in this occasion that the Holy Spirit came upon her and she was with child. Joseph did not want to deal with the shame of what could be or what he perceived to be. And even today we live in a time, uh, you know, Randy was talking just now, but you know, you just gotta know that you're right. I don't mean right in terms of a position. You just need to know that you're right in God, in Christ, and you're doing all that you know to do, and you're in that right place. First John chapter 3 and verse 21 says, Brethren, if thy heart condemn thee not, then we have confidence towards God. What is that saying? It's saying, when I stand before God, and I say, Holy Spirit, examine me. Which, as he was saying, it's a daily thing. You go to bed every day, every night. There needs to be a clearing when you lay your head down to rest at night. Like, God, is there any way I may have offended? Is there any way I might have done something wrong? Is there any way that I may be the cause of someone's stumbling? I need to be right. And so what, 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 what John is saying is you need to go before God. And when you go before God, and you ask him to examine you that closely, to closely scrutinize you, you must get this sense of assurance that I'm good with God. Not that I'm good. I'm good with God. You will never be perfect in the eyes of people. Not me, not you. Rid yourself of the delusion, illusion that somehow people will ever judge you as perfect. That will never happen. There's always going to be an occasion to find fault with something, anything, everything. So you've got to be good with God. And so we see in this story, um, he was ready. He was ready to put her away, right? He was ready to quietly divorce her. He was in, I can't deal with this scandal. This, 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 this situation is too scandalous. I can't deal with it. And the best thing I can do to save face is I'm going to just divorce you quietly. And, you know, you can go back to your parents. I'll go where I have to go. But the Holy Spirit had to come upon him and say, Joseph, as he pondered these things carefully, this, this is, this is, as he pondered these things carefully, Holy Spirit came and says, listen, this is my doing. This awful mess that you think you're in, please reconsider. This is my doing. Sometimes it's hard to see yourself in a difficult situation and say that God has anything to do with this. How could God be a part of this? Are you hearing me this one? How could God be a, how could God be a part of this scandal? You know, all things work together for good. I go back to this first. Listen. Okay, let me make this point clear. If you are right where you need to be in Christ Jesus, if the Spirit of God condemns you not when you stand in the presence of God, whatever is going on in your life, it is working to the good. Simply because you are positioned correctly in Christ Jesus. Now, if there's a problem with that, you might want to rethink the whole process and where you're at. But listen, this has been the, the guardrails of Christianity. If I live a holy life, if I do that which is right, then the Lord will answer my prayer. You know that song? 
If I live a holy life, shun the wrong and do the right, I know my God will make a way for me. That is the deepest theology in any song you have heard yet. If I position myself in Christ Jesus, if I live a holy life, if I shun the wrong and do the right, regardless of my circumstance, regardless of my situation, it will work for my good. Because the first thing, the, the first accountability I have is to God. And when I get that right, no matter what's going on, it will become right. Oh, you got to hear that this Christmas season. Our ultimate objective is to be right in the presence of Christ. So Joseph, as far as he knows, he's being right. It says there in the scripture, he's a righteous and devout man of God. So when he looks at the circumstance that appears to be scandalous, in his heart he goes before God, 1 John 3, 21, and he said, God, I didn't do that. He understands the biology of huma humanity, and there's something that has to happen in order for that to happen, and he's saying, God, I didn't do that. So therefore, his heart condemned him not. So he sought to put her away until God says, whoa, hold on a second. I am in this. And Joseph could immediately turn around because like, okay, I, I know I didn't do it. Are you with me? Yeah. So when God speaks and says, regardless of the scandal, understand, you didn't do that. He know he didn't do it. Is that me? He know he didn't do it. God knows he didn't do it. He was about to take a tragic action that could change the course of human history. But it is the word of God that comes in the midst of your difficult situation and says, I am in this. Are you hearing me this morning? Think about whatever you're in right now. And as you find yourself in a situation, here's how you can predict the outcome of this situation. I am right in the eyes of God. Oh, man, I could quit right there. That is the predictor for an outcome, regardless of the current tragedies and affliction that you're suffering in an outcome. If I know I am positioned in Christ strategically, righteously, I know who I am in Christ Jesus. I know what I have committed to him. I know who I am and what I've committed. And I know he's able to keep that until the day when he appears before me. If I know these things, I dismiss my present current situation because I cannot attribute any retribution to my present suffering. Oh, did you hear that? When I am positioned right in Christ and I'm in the midst of suffering, I cannot attribute this difficulty with some kind of retribution because I am out of place. Mm. <coughs> Isn't that what you were saying this morning? Yeah. You didn't say it in those words, but that's what you were saying. If I am positioned rightly and I stand before my God and my heart condemn me not, irrespective of my present difficulties, 
my outcome will be of God. And that's what God was telling to Joseph. He says, you, don't worry, I got this. You might be facing the ridicule and the scorn of your religious community, but in your heart, as you present yourself before me, you know you didn't do this. Then why do I have to suffer the shame and indignity of this most vital and visible act that is manifesting in front of me? Why do I have to suffer the disgrace of this? And God says, I am in this. I am in this moment. You get it? So then I won't read the rest of the scripture. I'll jump over to chapter 2. Hmm? Let's jump over to chapter 2. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn? king of the Jews. We saw his star as it rose and we have come to worship him. Now understand the, magi, the magi is from the Greek word magos, uh, uh, wise men and there are all kinds of story about it. There were three wise men. The Bible doesn't say that. They said wise men. The only thing that closely aligns to figure three is that they brought three different kinds of gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So there was no, no direct reading in the Bible. There was three men. Is there were three gifts? And so Western culture has said, the three wise men. Well, when you find it for me, I stand corrected. It doesn't say that. It says these guys, they could have had an entourage as wise men and kings traveled. So he, he's with his posse. But what was specific about what they're doing, they brought gold and frankincense and myrrh. Gold because of the king, frankincense of the precious uh, ointment, the sweet smelling savor that goes up with God, and myrrh, which is an embalming spice for the dead body. So, in that one instance at his birth, we see the king, we see the offering, and we see the preparation for his burial in that one moment. Y'all didn't know that? Oh my goodness. Okay, well, all right then. <laughs> But that, that is it. I mean, so when you hear all these stories about three wise men, this and this, no, get into the real meat of the story. The meat of the story is these people were wise men. What do wise people do? They observe. And so because they were in their observation mode, they were expecting something extreme to happen. They were expecting the arrival of a new day, a new dawn. They had an expectancy of a godly, uh, divine uh, input into human history. So when the star arose, because it was in their nature, these men, in some loose setting or translation, they would be considered more, and they're not, but they would be more considered closely aligned to an astrologer, somebody who read the stars. And they were looking at the stars. Because they did back in that time do bring forth interpretation from the stars and in the heavens. And so they had been messaged in terms of revelation, and so they were expecting this thing. And so when the star appeared in the sky, they're like, this is it. The hour has come. The thing that we've been observing, 
the thing that we've been looking forward to, we don't know what it is yet, but we see the star. And it appeared. And so we must follow this star to its conclusion, its resting place, its final place. And so they began to follow that star. And, yes, thank you. And they followed that star by day or night. I don't know how long they followed it for, but obviously they may have journeyed a distance. And they followed it and they followed it and they followed it until it came to rest in Bethlehem. <coughs> and then the wise men declared, this has got to be the place. Now, I have a bunch of scriptures to go through because today I'm talking, I'm trying to present a historical Jesus because the only validity that we have really any claims on in terms of Christianity is literally this. Christianity is a historical religion. Why? We have facts, archaeological findings. We have the perpetuation of history to prove that it is so. Well, how, how do I arrive at that? Well, we, we have perpetuated the same tradition for centuries. Okay, let me bring a, a modern day thing to you. Um, September 2005, I was in Austin, Texas. Anybody know what happened in September 2005? Hurricane Katrina. Have we ever forgotten Hurricane Katrina? We commemorate, we run news stories, we bring it back to our memory, the worst destruction that ever hit the United States coast and thousands and thousands of people died and in a flood and was perished and all that. And so what am I saying? Historically, generations to come long after we're dead and gone will still remember 2005 and the word Katrina. Let's take a more, uh, even another one. September 11, 2001. What happened? The Twin Towers came down. Historically, we're perpetuating an event in history. As a matter of fact, we have tagged it in terms of uh, 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 memory. We will never forget. And so for centuries to come, America would be reminded because we have services at Ground Zero and we have all kinds of stuff in Pennsylvania and at the Pentagon. And we are reminded of an event in our human history that would live because we already declared we will never forget. So for in, in Adventism, we are going to continue to remind ourselves and perpetuate this part of our history that we suffered a great tragedy on September 11, 2001. Why am I building a case like that? I'm trying to tell you something. Hmm? History have a way of repeating and reminding us of its significant events. I'm saying all that to see. Historically, this account is true because the wise men and all of Jerusalem were afforded the privilege of knowing what is the significance of the Magi's presence in Jerusalem, in Bethlehem. You get where I'm going with this? So for years upon years and centuries after centuries, we continue the oral tradition to the extent that it's now become a written perpetuation of a, of, of a historical event way back then. So the story has its origin 
in truth and has been repeated and repeated and repeated. So my first argument for uh, the authenticity of the story at the Magi's is that all of Jerusalem and Bethlehem were witnesses to an event of a star that shone in the east and the wise men followed, they brought their gifts, they found it and it lay behold over a stable and there they found the baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. Historical accuracy. April 19th, 1995. What happened? Oh, you wouldn't know that as much as I know it because I lived there. The Morrow Building, the federal building in Oklahoma City, blew up. First real homegrown terrorism in the United States. Have we forgotten that? Then why would we forget, as it's historically accurate, that the wise men came, followed the star, saw the baby, made their present, made their gifts, and all of that surrounding territory was blessed from that day onward to this day because historically they witnessed an event that they perpetuated. Are you getting this this morning? So we're celebrating Christmas. Don't know where we got that name from, but that's okay. I am good with it. Man, so <laughs> you look a hair on me or something. Okay. <laughs> Probably them funny pills that I take. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> better living through modern chemistry. What can I say? So, um, <laughs> historically, they witnessed an event, and they told of the event, and the event changed all of human history from then even now and forever until the Lord Jesus comes back. We have a historical account of a historical Jesus that you and I lay claims to. It's not a mystery. It's not a concept. It's not an idea. It is born out in fact with literature in its archaic form, writings inside the tombs, on the walls, in the caves. Everything in the, in the absence of the internet and newspaper were documented on the walls of human history in Jerusalem. We have an account. Make this argument, people. Make this argument when someone asks you about Christianity and about Jesus Christ. Make this argument. Connect those dots. We have not changed in the least bit from our earliest human history to this day. We record events and we tell of it. Half of the news you get is because somebody else got it and they told you. And you trusted their accuracy in what they saw or witnessed or heard. And you tell somebody else. Again, perpetuating something you know to be true based on the character and integrity of the person that's telling it to you. Man, this is so good. Make this argument. Make this argument. All right, I think I established that enough and I could go on. Hmm? So, I mean, all right, 
I'm in Matthew chapter 2. I just read verse 1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? The wise men were expecting the birth of the king, the Messiah. And when they saw the star, they associated it with this thing that their wisdom had predicted that there's a coming king to Jerusalem and his name is Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And so they followed that star and they came. Look at, look at, look at it. In the Old Testament, man slipped up when he fell and he created a an atrocity for humankind. And so God comes looking for this man, this woman, in the midst of their circumstance where they had committed grievous error, violating God's word. Right? Follow this. And so after they slipped and fell, God in his restorative uh, nature as the divine God of all creation and salvation, he comes and the first question I think and you could probably challenge me on that and look it up for yourself, but I think I'm as close to accuracy as I can. First question we have in the Bible as found in the Old Testament is God comes in the cool of the day and he says where are you? Hmm? Adam? Where are you? I don't think that was a geographical question as to exactly where behind the tree, north, northwest, two degrees south to the latitude. Where are you? You're hiding, and obviously because something is wrong, there's a separation that has come up between you and I. You've breached my promises. You've broken fellowship, and now you're in a dark place. And so God is trying to restore, and he comes and he says, where are you? I don't, where, where, where are you? He's searching for him spiritually. And we know the whole story and the process. And Jesus came and he restored mankind. And for this reason, one man came into the world. He brought sin. Another man came into the world and he brought righteousness. And so we now hear it. And, 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 and we're back amongst, depending on the chronology of how the Bible was written, we're back at that first question thing again in the Bible. And, and, and you have to understand, if you... If you want to split hairs, you might say, well, so, there was another question before that. But think about the chronology of when it was written. And here's the first question in the New Testament. Paul, give me a little coverage on this, right? Don't make this dog try to walk on all four legs. But here's the first question. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? First question, Old Testament, where are you? Restoration takes place. Mankind is redeemed. The king has come who has come with a specific purpose to redeem all mankind. And so the wise men come. They got the word. They have the revelation. They saw the star and they followed it. And now they're in Jerusalem. And the, and, and, and the wise men who's, who's carrying the burden of all of human history to make this record and account be exact and historically accurate, and so they want confirmation, and they didn't come in a vague way. They said when they arrived, where is he that is born 
king of the Jews. Oh my goodness. That dog will hunt. Yeah. Where is he? Two questions. Where are you? Because you're lost. And where is he? He that I'm looking for will fix where are you that you were lost. Oh my goodness. Are you with me? Yeah, if, if, if we find and establish this thing, we will take care and correct that thing. So I go back and I try to tie all that together into saying this same thing. Let's just revisit again First John 3, 21. Where am I? Where are you? I'm still asking the question. God is still asking the question. He comes this morning. He says, Leonard, where are you? Not in church in Hesperia at Motel 6. Where are you? Where are you right now? Where are you spiritually? I'm still looking for you to complete the first and full and complete act of restoration that was damaged way back in the garden when you separated yourself from me and caused my face to be hid from you. And so I brought you the perfect antidote to fix the original problem <laughs> and the original problem was man's sin and separated himself from God and for this purpose we celebrate Christmas but the true essence is this is a season and a time and a purpose for the restoration of mankind back to God you were lost where are you and now it's where is he he's here I know he's here we saw his star in the east, and we are come to worship him. Hmm? Tell that story. Tell that story. It's a single narrative. Tell that story. Connect the dots between when we were lost and how the provision was made for us to be found and be rediscovered. Woo! So... Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked. You have to understand King Herod is privy to all the intel of the day. Hmm? His high-ranking office gives him privilege to the current intel, like the President of the United States would have intel on global affairs. Because he's got his people working for him to bring him these kinds of information, this news. So here's Herod. And who's Herod? Herod is the king. And he asks, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? Well, how did he know that? Without any direct proof, other than spiritual intel that was conveyed to him, he's asking for the same thing that the wise men are asking for. Where is this new king that y'all are talking about? Where's this king I heard about? Where is he born? Why is he so concerned? His kingdom is threatened. A new king, which has been foretold, and if I have time this morning, I want to go to some of those scriptures there. And I may have to leave out some, but I may jump on some key ones like Isaiah 6, 9. So get that one handy to tee up for me. Where is he? And where would he be born? Because 
It is a strategic import that I know where he's born, not because I want to come and worship him, unlike what the wise man says, show me where he is, I've come to see the newborn because I have come to worship the new king. Herod's position was not that I've come to worship the new king, I gotta kill this new king. This king is a threat to my monarchy, a threat to my reign, a threat to, to my privileges. I want him dead, but I'm gonna pretend for whatever it's worth, that I'm really genuinely seeking him, but that's, not, that's further from the truth than the man is in the moon, and we still perpetuate that where, where we pretend to be looking for Jesus. We pretend to be looking for Jesus for a diverse sets of reasons that we politicized, you know. Um, so tell me about this God. Really, really interested in him. I need to find a new argument to argue against him. If I know more about him, I can defend my position better because I can lift an argument against him in order to erect my good argument, my so-called good argument. So his position was not because he wanted to worship. His position is because he wanted to kill him. And we find today that mankind is still hypocritizing their search for Jesus for all kinds of fallacy, reasoning. And there's no truth in it. We're still dealing with the original problem to this day. Show me another God. Show me another king. Let me find a new position. You know, so where am I at this morning? After saying all that, this is what I want to say. Four words. Four words. I said all that to say four words. Jesus is the Messiah. <laughs> that 20 minutes or however long went down there was to establish those four words. That's my first point. Jesus is the Messiah. Right? My message is the visit of the Magi's. What significance they brought? What is this, where does this fit in human history and all that kind of stuff? That's the message. But my point, first point is Jesus is the Messiah. That's what I've been establishing, that Jesus is the Messiah. Hmm? Let me check the time. Okay. Because I got a lot of scripture and I... Uh, Hmm? You got you got Isaiah nine six. Mm -hmm. Read that for me. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince, Prince of, of peace. peace. And seven says his government and its peace will never end. Okay. He will rule with fairness. Yeah. And Justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies. He will make this happen. Okay. So what am I doing? I'm continuing to establish and for the birth of Jesus Christ. 
So I say Christianity is a historical religion. It's a historical faith, a historical faith. Okay, so after establishing the history and the perpetuation of the history, both oral and written, we go back in a deep dive further back yet, hundreds of years, centuries before this event, when it says, for unto us is born a king. For unto us is born a king, which 1,400 years from now, wise men will discover because... <laughs> Isaiah was a prophet. Right? Isaiah says, Unto us is born a king, and the government shall be on his shoulder. And remember, he said it. I think, Google it for me or check it out. But it's either 700 years or 1400 years. So hold me to one of those two or a combination of both. You'll find it's researchable. So the prophet said that 1400 years ago. 1400 years ago. The wise men, <laughs> the wise men started to look for something that is a future event in history, 1400 years. And they have passed on this tradition and oral perpetuation of this coming historical event to the succeeding sets of wise men throughout history. So when one generation of wise men are coming to the end of their natural lives, this was passed on to a succeeding generation of new wise men who are still continuing to look for this one event that Isaiah prophesied 1400 years ago that unto us is born a king. So, are you connecting the historical dots? <laughs> Can Islam do that? Can any religion you know do that? Present a historical accuracy with data to back it up that we serve a risen Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. And we established this morning and for all of human history, Jesus is the Messiah. Yes. Mm. Oh man, that is good. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we're establishing. That's what my, 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 my effort and endeavor this morning is to, to create an accurate, traceable, historical accounting of the birth of Jesus Christ, who was pre, 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 what's the word I want to use? Some semblance of those both words. Predestined. Yeah, predestined has a little bit other twinge to it that um, I'm hesitating on. Somebody said precursor. I was a precursor, that's a better word. A precursor means a predictive event about to happen. So this is the precursor of that thing. So we had this precursor of the human event that changed all of history. Seven hundred years. Thank you. Seven hundred years before the event, a prophet, an Old Testament kind of wise man, told of an incident, and succeeding generations of wise men 
who watched the heavens. This is all they did. They heard that. It came from the voice of a reputable man, the prophet Isaiah, one probably the, one of the most strong, prominent, uh, powerful uh, prophets of the Old Testament and the whole Bible. He said it. Israel paid attention to the prophets. We talked about that in my last message. This was so big that they tried to entice Samuel, I mean, in, tried to entice Nehemiah by telling him, well, the prophet said, da 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 you know, because they knew the power of prophecy in the life of the Israelite nation. And so, heavy emphasis was placed on what did the man of God say? Here's what the man of God said. Jesus is the Messiah. That's what he said. That's what he said. He said that 700 years prior, Jesus is the Messiah. So reread that portion there for me again. Let's chop it up a little bit as we go on. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Pause there for a second. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. Put those two words together. Instead of just wonderful and counselor, let's call, put it together. Wonderful. wonderful. Okay. That's default by my belly. Wonderful counselor. What is a counselor? Who is a counselor? Oh, come on now, people. Are you beginning to see this? What are counselors? Who are counselors? Tell me. Define for me. Denotatively. What is a counselor? Someone who gives wise advice. Someone who gives wise advice. Someone who stands as a go-between, between you and your problem, <laughs> to bring solutions. That guy, 700 years ago, was deemed and called wonderful counselor. That guy would go between you and your problem. <laughs> Lord have mercy. Somebody. <laughs> Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father. Pause there for a second. Mighty God, Almighty God, not just mighty God, Almighty God, all powerful God, omnipotent, all powerful, Almighty God. Everlasting Father. Can anybody show me the end of everlasting? <laughs> Come on, somebody. Google that for me. <laughs> you can't. You can't show me the end of everlasting, nor can you show me the beginning of everlasting. Everlasting is on a continuum without end, without beginning and without end. And he's called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father. Tell that story. Tell that story. Tell that story. Read. Pause right there. <laughs> Not going to let you read this. This is too much to let you read it all in one sweep. Prince of Peace. When everything else fails and you have nothing to hold on to the one thing that should never be shaken is your peace i know you're feeling that game 
I know you're feeling it. I, I know you're feeling it. Wonderful counselor. Almighty God. Everlasting father. The prince. He is the prince. I mean he owned peace. He is like a sorry son. He owned all the oil. Prince of peace. The very thing which is a part of the essence of his very being and nature, that when he was about to go back to heaven, when he searched the, the divine Godhead and the spectrum of the, the, the everlasting concept of all that God is, the one thing he decided is, this I must leave. Not healing, not raising the dead, not miracles. All those things come and go. They're situational. This is what I leave with you. The best of the best. The very essence of my calling from beyond and before I was in my mother's womb. I leave you what had been tabbed and put on my bill by Isaiah himself. He said, you are going to call this guy the prince of peace. Mm. Woo. Woo. <laughs> Can somebody say hallelujah? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. John 1, 1 through 3. I'm going to just throw in a little bit of that. John, I'm not going in order like I give it to you. No. John chapter 1. Verses one, two, and three. You got it? Okay. We're building our case. I said, we're building our case. I'm lawyering this morning. You know, when you're a lawyer, you present a case <laughs> so that the, 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 the defense ain't got a leg to stand on. We're lawyering this morning with fact and historical accuracy and data. Read John. Eternal word. In the beginning, the word already existed. Oh, my goodness. No, I ain't gonna let you read that truth. Come on, you gotta stop. You gotta stop. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. I didn't hear you. You gotta say that again. In the beginning, the word already existed. Pause. I just asked you to dissect for me everlasting. We couldn't come up with that. And yet, John is saying, in the beginning, whenever that was, Whenever God went, boom, it was there. <laughs> when, when, when God went, kaboom, in the beginning, he already existed. So in the mind of God, when the council of the Godhead decided to create this thing we call the universe and earth and mankind, even before what evidence itself as is today, he said, He's already there. <laughs> He's already there. Oh, this is good stuff. <laughs> this is good stuff. Read. The word was with God, and the word was God. Uh-huh. You know I'm going to stop here, right? In the beginning, before human history, before atomic and molecular structure of matter and substance was created and evidenced by human eyesight and memory and history and all that, before that, he was there. And he said, the word, the word, which is Jesus, oh, that make me blow up something else. The word, the word, 
That was the spoken word out of the mouth of God to create Jesus. Just like, uh, you know, I can create pictures in your mind right now. Um, close your eyes. Close your eyes. Not all of you, some of y'all close your eyes. You have to prove what they're telling you. Close your eyes. All right, the ones with your eyes closed. I am wearing a blue shirt. What's coming to your mind? Huh? Say it up loudly. Navy blue shirt with a color. You are saying and manifesting the interpretation of an impression that is in your mind that is universally accurate from time immemorial to now. Blue has been blue and never been anything else but blue. <laughs> Woo! God, you're good. <laughs> blue will always be blue. The word I spoke formed a picture in your head with your eyes closed. You could still imagine what blue is. So when he said out of his mouth, Jesus, <laughs> when he spoke, Jesus, what came out of that word? A human bodily form of a divine person who was to come forth in the earth and his name is Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And he's supposed to save the people from their sins. Word. <laughs> word. Jesus is the word but it is the word manifested with meaning outside of the mind of God with all his divine intention for what it's supposed to be. And he spoke it and he is. And so it says there, and he was with God. Yes. And it goes on to say, and he was God. Yep. And he is God. You cannot separate those two things. He was and he is. So find me the beginning of everlasting for me if you can. You can't because he was from the very thought that became an expression of a word that became a manifestation. Oh Lord, that's a message right there I could write there. From the imagination came a word that came a manifestation. <laughs> so God thought it, he said it, and it came about. And then he says in Ephesians, let this mind, which was in Christ Jesus, be also in you. Let the ability of the creative word to exist in your mind and heart, to be spoken through your mouth, and then manifest in real in front of you. Learn to say it. Oh my. Oh my. Learn to say it. That's the creative force of God. Learn to say it. Say it. Say it. Say it. Come on, people. Say it. Jesus is the Messiah. Say it. He is the Messiah. And since he is a, a product and the existence of a divine mind, that was a divine thought. 
that became a divine word, that became a manifested divine person. We have established if he's that good to create this thing in the beginning and before we had form. And obviously, here's my second point. Jesus is the Messiah. Second point, God is in control. Amen. Oh my. Oh, somebody shout a hallelujah. God, God is in control. So Joseph, that pregnancy deal that got you all twisted backwards, God is in control. I got this. I got this. You don't have to put away in shame. This scandal of a teenage pregnant mom, unmarried, having a baby, that scandal. I'm in control. I got this. I got this. <laughs> oh, man. Huh? Yeah, finish reading that one. John 1, 2 says he existed in the beginning with God. 3 says God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him. Wow. Nothing that was made was made without him. Oh, let me see if I could break that down. Let me see if I could granulize that. Nothing that was made was made ex parte to his consent. So, my son and I were watching last night. What were we watching again? Our planet. We're watching our planet and all the marvelous discoveries and life beneath the earth and above the earth and all that kind of stuff. You ought to watch it. What, what, what channel was that on? It's a Netflix thing. It's, it's, I watched it, I watched the choreography of nature. I watched birds feeding, fish swimming, animals, insects, birds, big beasts, wildebeest, small beasts, existing, understanding the hierarchy of the ecology that was in the mind of God, where he put a subset inside them as to how to exist and to continue to perpetuate life and generate life and keep it sustained and all that. God, way back then, put a system inside mankind to understand how to instinctively perpetuate himself. Nothing was made that was made without him. So let's bring that down to here. <coughs> this is a chair. Ain't nothing spiritual about this. <laughs> Except it entered into the mind of somebody. That would relieve you from standing all the time. <coughs> How are we going to do this? Well, the first guy said... Hmm, we don't have metal, that was back then. But we have wood from the tree that was planted in the earth 
that receive its sustenance from the rain and the nutrient in the soil, and we could carve that and make that into a particular frame and put a back and a seat in it. Nothing was made that was made without his consent. So even ugly, ordinary, unspiritual chair came out of the mind of God. <laughs> Tell this story. Tell the story. There is nothing around you or surrounding you right now that does not have the signature, the imprimatur of God on it. Amen. He made everything. Everything. All these byproducts of the original intent that you benefit from screams God. God. God, look, look, let me show you how, let me show you another way how that screams God. Look, 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 this, oh my, oh my, watch this, watch this. I'm going to not sit down, I'm going to drop down. <laughs> Boom. Yeah, ordinary, huh? <laughs> I had faith in that chair that it wouldn't break. <laughs> That it would sustain me in that unholy, unspiritual chair. Faith from God entered into my mind with a certain relativity about past and history and accuracy and all that kind of stuff. That says that thing, because of its construction, is able to support all of me. And I dropped in it without fear of contradiction or fear of injury that it was going to support me. I use my faith in that unspiritual thing. <laughs> oh, man. Come on, Kim. You're getting this. I'm getting it. <laughs> I put my faith in an unspiritual thing. Oh, pardon, why would you put your faith in an unspiritual thing? Because nothing was made that was made without him. So the very design there goes back centuries, more than centuries. Goes back to everlasting that he was there with him before what was, was, was. And he created in man the creativity of the mind to develop something in the 20th century that would support a weary, overweight guy like myself without fear of contradiction that I would fall or it would collapse. I use my faith without even stopping to blink an eye or ask a question, knowing that my faith, faith. <laughs> in the original designer. <laughs> oh my goodness. My faith in the original designer has proven itself throughout human history that this thing can support me. Amen. God is in control. Yes. Jesus is the Messiah. God is in control. I'm going to hustle through to my third and final point. Huh? Yes. So the word became human <laughs> Go. and made his home among us. Yeah. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. <laughs> so the word became flesh 
and manifested itself beyond the thought in the heart and mind of God, past an expression of a word that gives definition as to what it should be, and existed in time from then throughout now. And it is the glory of God. It's the glory of God. Tell this story. Seriously. When all your family come over for Christmas and stuff, I'm not tooting my horn. Listen to this message one more time and create a moment of realization for your friends and family that this reason for this season is that we want to emphasize historically and otherwise that Jesus is the Messiah and that God is in control. And thirdly, the Bible is God's word. So I'm looping all those things back together. So I told you what it is, I told you how it's working, and I tying it back to the end because all the information I gave you came out of the Bible. <laughs> Where is my proof for my argument? It came right out of the Bible. So Jesus is the Messiah, God is in control, and the Bible is God's word. So I get my information from the very book that he has authorized. And my circle is complete. My circle is complete. Why do I celebrate Christmas? I celebrate Christmas because a human event in human history over 700 years ago was predicted by a prophet, a man of God, who says, hold your horses. This world has to be transformed significantly from that day when Adam ate the apple in the garden a year. And because there was separation, and I had to come looking for him and asking, where are you? What did you do? To the extent that I have this new place that I find in him that I could, okay, I'm right in your eyes. Therefore, I'm good with what I do and what's happening to me. Because my conscience is so clear and my heart is so fixed on you that I could stand before you boldly with confidence knowing that as I stand in your presence and have confidence with you, I know that I'm right in your eyes. And whatever I find myself in, whatever pregnant teenage mom kind of situation that I find myself in, God says, I got this. Your job is to know that you were right and that you did right and you're free from condemnation. Therefore, let this thing play out. Why? Because I'm in control. God is in control. And where I get that control from? From a historically accurate book that lives from time and even lives now that the Bible is God's word. So jump me down to, um, go to Micah chapter 5 verse 2 and then 2 Timothy 3. While she's looking at somebody because look who the other one. Micah chapter 5 verse 2. Ephrata. Ephrata. Yeah. Only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come from you on my behalf. Oh, so Google Micah for me <laughs> and get his history, his dating. This is Micah. You know, I, I don't know why they call him a minor prophet. I don't know what a minor major prophet. A prophet is a prophet. Here's what he's saying. You owe Jerusalem. A king is coming unto you. 
A king is coming unto you. Emmanuel, they say, God with us. Wonderful counselor, almighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. He is coming to be amongst you. And for this reason, we celebrate. We don't celebrate because of the seal or the eggnog spiked with Jack Daniels. No, we celebrate because Jesus is the Messiah. We celebrate as a historical event, just like 9-11 and Katrina and all the other things I told you at the very beginning, so that we could remember the significance of the star that shone in the east and the wise men who were on duty for the last 700 years have finally discerned in the heavens, this is the thing we've been waiting for and it is here and it is now. You know what? You found it? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. I'm going to quit after that. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Who got it? Go. All scripture was given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And verse 17, that the man of God may be complete Thoroughly equipped for every good work. Lacking nothing. So, what did I say was my last point? The Bible is God's word. What does Timothy say? All scripture is given by inspiration, or as we may call it, divine spark. God sparked the word, his word, in the heart of his chosen men with the capabilities to carry forth for human history his purpose, his plan, his way, his nature for all of time and for eternity and recorded it in a book and we could read more about that later on but it's in Revelation chapter 5 and if you're so game we could read a few verses in that and then I'm really quit this time. Okay, but he says this entire plan is in my word. Okay. And my word was inspired by God, me himself. I inspired. The stuff you're reading, I, God, who is in control, I put those words in the heart of man to write an instruction manual for you to live by in 2019. I wrote that for you to live by in 2019. The Bible is God's word. Revelation chapter 5. Give me a few words. Mm -hmm. The right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. Mm -hmm. There was writing on the inside and on the outside of the scroll. Mm -hmm. And it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice. Who is worthy to break the seals on the scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, <laughs> has won the victory. He is right. worthy to open the scroll and his, its seven seals. 
Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. Slow down. We're coming to where I'm going to wind up. Quit at about verse 10. So if you ain't there yet, quit about verse 10. Okay? Oh, okay. John, you're on six? Okay, I'll let you read it. John, the revelator, is having his moment in the presence of God. And the future time, the doctrine of eschatology, future things to come. You know that thing we always talk about, the rapture and the coming of the Lord, eschatology. John is writing about that thing. And he's saying, I stood and there's these scrolls in the end time that all of human history, the rights, the wrongs, who sinned, who didn't, is there presented, and they're looking for someone worthy with the power of asbestos to touch that thing. Oh my goodness. We're looking for someone who would not be burnt up or consumed when they touch that sacred document. We're looking for that guy, and we scanned all around, and there is nobody could reveal this mystery. Oh, we're in darkness. We will never know what the promise is and was. We will never know who can open these scrolls. And he goes on to say, what did I see? I see a lamb. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. But it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out into every part of the earth. He stepped back, he stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a heart and they grew, and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are prayers of God's people. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Incense? Mm -hmm. You mean the same thing the wise men came with? Mm -hmm. Is now being tied up in a neat package at the end? Mm -hmm. Incense, offering, savor, sweet smelling savor to the God in heaven? Oh, wow. This is some good stuff. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. This is some good stuff. I saw as it were a lamb that looked like he was slaughtered. Somebody remind me of a guy who got strapped on a cross and crucified and slaughtered and beaten and bloody and, and, and the lamb of God uh, slain from the foundation, from the time God says, let there be Jesus was killed in that moment. Oh my goodness. <laughs> From the time God says, let there be, that lamb was slain from the foundation. So even as God was putting together what we manifest as this created thing in front of us, God had already sacrificed Jesus. I call that booyah. From that time, even then, the perfect guy, who is in control. He knew that Jesus is the Messiah and that he, God, is in control. And he's now putting it in a book that these guys are to unveil for all of human history. And nobody could open the book except the guy who was killed from the foundation was slaughtered way back before blade of grass rose up in the earth. He was slaughtered for this purpose to come in time to sacrifice for mankind. Yeah, that guy, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Oh, oh. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. 
Thank you, Jesus. I'm done. <laughs>